Our first passage today comes from the third chapter of Exodus. Then the Lord said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've, I've come down to rescue them. And from the prophet Amos, we hear these words. Thus saith the Lord, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your no noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang for me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. of protests across our country. We've ridden this roller coaster of volatility. We've seen the pain expressed in the faces and in the actions of the people at the protests. We've seen riots in our country. We've watched and our country has been reeling and we've seen the divisions in our country once more. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about protests. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about justice. But before we do that, we're going to talk about repentance. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story about a baseball player. His name was Satchel Paige. Satchel Paige was a pitcher, maybe arguably the greatest pitcher of all time. Now, I have his rookie card. It's, uh, I collect old baseball cards. It's one of my favorite baseball cards in my collection. And you see it here on the screen. Uh, this is a 1949 Bowman, and he started in 1948. He actually began playing in 1948 for the Cleveland Indians the last three months of the season. And, uh, and during that period of time, he uh, pitched in seven games. He won six of them. He had a 2.43 ERA, and he helped win one of the World Series games that he played in when the Indians won the World Series that year. But here's what's interesting about this guy. This is his rookie card. He was 42 years old when he became a rookie in the major leagues. 42 years old. Now, he retired at the age of 46 from the major leagues. And, and again, by this time, people recognized this guy had won, uh, it's rumored, won over 1,000 games as a pitcher. Nobody in the major leagues ever came close to that. In his career, 1,000 games, 50 shutouts. Nobody can touch that. But none of those were in the major leagues. He retired at the age of 46, and then interesting, one of the records that he still holds is the oldest player to play in a Major League Baseball game, because in Kansas City, Charles Finley of the Kansas City A's, the owner of the Kansas City Athletics, before the Kansas City Royals were here, called up uh, Satchel Paige, he'd played seven years in Kansas City in the Negro Leagues for the Monarchs, called him up and asked if he would play one more game. He was 59 years old in 1965 when he played this game at the old Memorial Stadium. He pitched three innings in that game. 
He, got, uh, he had one hit against him. He was otherwise no runs, only one hit. Carl Yastrzemski hit that hit off of him that, that game. And while the, while the Kansas City A's were out batting, he was sitting by the dugout in a rocking chair with a pretty nurse who was massaging his shoulder and his arm to get him ready to pitch for the next inning. It was an amazing and fun thing to watch. I was only one. I didn't see it. I've only heard about it. But, but here's the question. By the way, here's a photograph you see of uh, Satchel Paige, Kansas City hat on. Here's the question I have for you is why did the greatest pitcher of all time only become a rookie, only begin to play in the major leagues when he was 42 years old? And you know the answer to that question. It was a gentleman's agreement that started back in the 1890s with the commissioner of baseball and the owners of the baseball teams, the managers and coaches and the players. And the gentleman's agreement, never really written down so anybody could find it, was that black people don't get to play in our league. Now, it wasn't just the players and the coaches and the managers and the owners and the, and the commissioner. It was actually the fans, too. They seemed to prefer it that way. I wonder, in all of those years, like 60 years, almost 60 years of Major League Baseball, do you think any of those people thought they were racist? I'm guessing most of them wouldn't have taken on that name. Most of them actually just thought of themselves as good Christian people. 90% of the country at that time were Christians. They would have thought of themselves as good Christian people, and this is just the way life is. Until somebody said, that's just not right. That's what we're going to talk about today. So protests came to Kansas City this last week, and if you're watching from across the country, they probably came to your city too. And I just want to remind you, protests and riots are a, in a society are a sign of something that's a deeper problem, right? I mean, it's not just a protest for the sake of having a protest. There's not riots for the sake of just having a riot. No, there's something deeper. It's like a fever in the body. And when you have a fever, you know that there's an infection, there's something wrong, and you're supposed to try to figure out what's wrong, right? It's a sign of something else, a deeper problem. And that's what the, that's what the case is when it comes to the riots, and this last week in particular, and we know what that deeper something was. It, it, at least we saw it clearly played out when a police officer has his knee on George Floyd's neck and for over eight minutes, stays, remains there, kneeling upon him even two minutes after he no longer can speak, after he's passed out and then died, or apparently died during that moment, even though he was declared dead later. And, and the thing is, for most of us who are in a position where we don't experience this kind of racism, we don't experience this kind of pain in our lives, we don't notice it. It's invisible to us until it becomes visible. And suddenly when it becomes visible and we can't ignore it anymore, we have to make a decision. Is that okay? Are we just going to be quiet and wait for it to sort of settle down? Or are we going to say something? Right? And there's a whole lot of people who had to say something. There's a whole lot of people who were angry and filled with rage because of the life experience that they had had somewhere along the way, maybe many times along the way, was reflected in that image of George Floyd dying on the ground, begging to catch a breath. Right? We have to see that. We have to hear that. So, so we've seen protests this last week erupting across the country and around the world where people are saying, that is not okay, that's not what it means to be human. This isn't right. And then sometimes riots go along with protests. So let me just be clear, a protest is not necessarily a riot. A riot is when, when groups of people end up resorting to violence to accomplish their means, to make their message heard. And sometimes with riots comes looting, and sometimes looting is an expression of anger and rage against the society and somebody thinking, you know, it's time for me to get what I, what I deserve because I've been pushed down for so long. And sometimes it's just bad actors who see an opportunity in all of the anger around them to steal, to take, to loot. We, we've seen here in Kansas City just a little bit of that, rioting, looting, just a little. And we've seen cars set on fire, 
We saw this across the country. By this time, of course, we've all heard Dr. King's famous words. He actually gave them many times in 1966, 1967, and before his death in 1968, when he talked about riots, because riots were a regular occurrence during this period of time, and he said this, you know it by, probably by heart, you've heard it many times this week, a riot is the language of the unheard. A riot is the language of the unheard. But then he goes on to ask this question, what is it that America has failed to hear? Right? If a riot and if protests, which are not the same thing as a riot, a protest is generally a peaceful event in which, a, in which people are speaking out for rights, and then sometimes a riot accompanies that. There, there have been very few riots relative to the large number of, of protests that have happened across the country. But the question is, what is it that America is failing to hear if a riot is the message or the voice of the unheard? Now, we know what we've failed to hear. At least maybe we're starting to get a glimpse of it. Right, that there's still a problem in our country. There's a problem sometimes in the way that police arrest or the, or the tactics that they use. This is not true most of the time, perhaps, but there are places and there are people and there are times where this is the case, and we tend to ignore that. We get offended when we have people talk in this way. Right? We got offended when Colin Kaepernick took a knee. Uh, we, we got offended when people did this in football because we thought, well, it was against the flag or it was against the country. No, what if, what if it was really just a way of saying, this is just not right what's happening to some people in our country and somebody's got to speak up? Because that's exactly what the Bible calls us to do, to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. Right? And, and so in this case, we could not ignore it anymore. We had to see it. So people are speaking out. People are saying, okay, there is a disparity in our country based on race. We know that, but many of us don't feel it. And there are others who feel it all the time. Yes, we've come a long way but we still have ways to go. And that's part of what these protests were telling us, part of what we see in the videos that just said, hey, this isn't right, there's something still wrong in our country. We have to see that, understand that, and hear it. Now, I know of no thoughtful person who thinks rioting and looting and, and destroying property and, and acts of violence is a good thing to do. In fact, it undermines, this is what Dr. King said, it undermines the moral character of the protest, right? Because the focus begins to be on the thing that was done that, that was destructive as opposed to the thing that's done that's constructive. But Dr. King understood why they happened and the rage and the anger and the pain. Now this week, I had a chance to go on Tuesday and Wednesday night of this week to uh, two protests that were happening here in Kansas City. And uh, I just thought I'd show you a picture. Uh, some of you have seen this on my Facebook. This is Pastor Daryl, uh, who's a part of our congregation, Pastor Daryl Burton. And he and I were there that night. I think he actually came out to make sure I was going to be okay, which I just appreciate. He just said, hey man, I'm going to meet you down there. And we just hung out and we marched and we walked. And, and uh, here, here's another photograph or, uh, of the area around the plaza as people are holding up their signs. And if you look really carefully, you're going to find that most of these people are in their teens or 20s who are here. Let's go to the next. We've got a little video footage of us marching up Main Street in the Midtown area. You know, these are all young people. These young people are coming out holding their signs. They're saying, we want a better world. We want something different than what we've experienced now. We see this, and we don't feel like this is right. We want to do something different. Lots of young people who are coming out saying, this can't be what it means to be human. This is not okay. They're looking for justice. They wanted fairness. They wanted equity. They saw an injustice, and they wanted to speak out. And how can you not go, yes, because that's what the Bible calls us to do when there's injustice or unfairness. They hold up signs, Black Lives Matter, and occasionally we'll have people say, well, but, yeah, but all lives matter. Why not all lives matter? Of course all lives matter. Everybody understands white lives matter, blue lives matter. The problem is right now it doesn't seem like black lives matter to a lot of people which is why those signs become important as a voice, as a way of saying this group of people matters because they've been made to feel like they don't matter and things have happened to them that have communicated that message. Black lives matter, they wanted to say. They wanted to make sure we heard that. 
I want you to see these thousands of young people who are standing up for justice, marching for righteousness. Now, one final word about protest that I think is important. Protest is the work of a democracy. Important things happen as a result of protesting, right? It was a protest that led to the Revolutionary War that finally led to this country having its liberation. It was protest that ultimately led to the Civil War, which ultimately led to slaves being set free. It was protest that led to women having the right to vote. It was protest that led to the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1965. Protests matter. They are a way of expressing truth. And when, when you have worked every other way of trying to bring about change and you can't, then the voice of the people stand up and they say, this isn't right, and we're going to speak. Protests are a good thing. If you look in the Bible, you find in some sense the prophets were launching a protest. Moses was launching a protest. You think of if you're a Protestant, Protestantism was a protest, right? And, and when we look at every great reform movement in history, it started with somebody speaking up and protesting. So I want to shift gears for a moment, and I want to focus on three important Hebrew words in the Bible. But I want to start with, with what happens with Moses. So I want to remind you, Moses is uh, minding his own business out in the Sinai Right? He's 80 years old, and he knows that the Israelites are suffering as slaves and being oppressed in the, in the land of Egypt. But you know what? He's minding his own business. Like, they're a long ways away. I'm sure he thinks about them regularly. He didn't do anything about it. Until one day, he comes across a burning bush in the middle of the wilderness. And you remember, God speaks to him from the burning bush and says, Moses, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I have heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them. But how's God going to rescue them? He's going to send this 80-year-old sheep herder. He's going to send a human being to be a part of rescue. He's going to send this person to speak up and to stand with and to confront the powers that be. That's what he's going to do. And so you remember what Moses does? He makes excuses. Oh, God, I stutter. You know, you can find somebody else. Oh, God, please. You're going to find somebody who can do this better. Than I. What, 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 what am I going to say to them? If they, and, and, he, and he finally, finally Moses says, please just send somebody else. And God in anger says, you know, really, basically, God says, it's you I'm calling. There are times where we see the suffering of other people or we see the things that are not right in our society. And we think if we just keep our head down, you know, or just kind of keep quiet, maybe we just gently say, maybe we post a meme. That's really, if we post something on Facebook, that maybe is going to be our big, you know, stand. Well, sometimes posting on Facebook is good and Twitter too. But you got to do more than that. Sometimes you got to do more than that, right? And, and so that's Moses. And, and finally, Moses agreed to go. And the slaves were liberated because he said yes. Right? Sometimes you got to go. Sometimes you got to be with people. Sometimes you got to speak out loud, not just behind your computer screen. I want to teach you three Hebrew words uh, that, that we find in Scripture that are really important. These appear hundreds of times in the Bible. The first one is mishpat, and that generally is translated as justice. The second is tzedakah, which is translated as righteousness. Mishpat appears over 200 times in the Hebrew Bible. It signifies ensuring that the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized have equal treatment. I want you to listen to this really carefully. Mishpat in the Bible isn't, you know, making sure that the wealthy are receiving equal treatment under the law because that wasn't a problem. The problem was the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. And so over and over again, the Bible says, you've got to show justice to them. You've got to make sure that they're being treated fairly in the courts, that they're being treated fairly in society because they don't have the same rights usually. They have the same rights, they're just not often given to them because they have no power. That's what justice was about. 
And then tzedakah was about, uh, it, righteousness is the, is the term, but it usually meant charity. It meant doing something kind for someone else, even though they had no right to ask this of you. It meant paying attention to people who needed your care. So righteousness wasn't about, you know, not thinking uns, you know, sinful thoughts. Righteousness in the Hebrew Bible was about doing something for someone else who needed you. That's what righteousness is. It appears hundreds of times in the scripture as well. Mishpat, 200 times. Tzedakah is actually 157 times, if I remember correctly. And then there's another Hebrew word. By the way, when we think about justice, we think about uh, Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? Right? This is just so crystal clear. What does God ask of you? Haven't you wondered that sometimes? Like, God, what do you want from me? Here it is. What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6.8. To do justice. Mishpat. To do justice and to love kindness. That's our next Hebrew word we're going to learn. Kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. The Hebrew word there for kindness is hesed. Hesed appears 240 times, 248 times in the Bible. It is, again, like righteousness, undeserved kindness. It is like going to see when there's somebody who needs something and you give it to them. It's not about feeling warm, fuzzy feelings. It's often translated as love too, but it's selfless, sacrificial love. It's not a feeling. It's a way of acting and being. What does God require of you? That you do justice, that you make sure fairness and equity are taking place, and that you love kindness. You share kindness. You're looking to see who needs me and how can I help? Right? Micah says that's what God is looking for from you. Jesus is teaching that too when he talks about agape. Right? Agape is the Greek term for the Hebrew word hesed. It's probably, or at least one of the words it's used. It's probably the word that he was using when he was speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew. So, tzedakah, mishpat, and hesed. Listen, Amos says this. Do you know, this is God, he's, God is speaking. It's like the Lord says, do you know what I want? This is our passage we heard read a moment ago. Do you know what I want? I want justice, mishpat. I want oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. I mean, God couldn't be any more clear that God wants justice. God wants fairness, especially for the marginalized or the powerless. Or Isaiah says it this way, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, plead for the widow, right? Speak up, protest on their behalf. The prophets were clear this was not optional. Now, what happens when we don't extend mishpat, tzedakah, and hesed to others? Or maybe I should just ask, how do we do that? And I'm going to suggest we have to start here. We have to start by looking in our own heart. We have to look to see what in my heart doesn't really care about other people, is indifferent to the suffering of other people. What in my heart tends to make excuses for the bad things that happen to other people as though they don't really happen? Have I taken the time to actually listen to other people, to hear their stories, to, defer, to befriend people as so that I don't make excuses, but instead I actually listen to see what might be wrong in our society and before I even care about the rest of the society, I've got to look at me. What might be wrong in me? Like part of what I know is that, is that I grew up in a way that I'm blind to certain things in our society. I just am. And I have certain benefits by virtue of being educated, white, and male. Right? And we don't like to hear that. Especially white folks don't like to hear that. But there are benefits that come along with that. I, I don't ever, when I'm stopped by the police, I'm never afraid that they're going to pull a gun on me. But every African-American man that I know is worried about what might happen when a police pull him over. It's not that, that all the police are bad and they're going to do something like that, but there is this fear underneath there, and so the hands go on the steering wheel at 10 and 2. They've been taught that from the time they were children, right? I wasn't taught that because I don't have to be afraid of that, right? And there's a whole host of other things that, that, that are just a part of life. I, you know, I can, well, you get the idea. There are benefits and privileges 
to my place in life. I have to recognize that. I have to see that. And then I have to listen. I have to listen and understand and finally be able to see the brokenness in myself and my indifference before I can do anything to help anyone else. I have to have a conversion. I have to repent. Can I remind you, the Greek word that I want you to memorize today is metanoia. Metanoia is a Greek word in the New Testament that is usually translated as repentance. To repent is to see things you'd never seen before, like, ah, I hadn't noticed that before. I didn't understand that before. It's to have an aha moment, repentance. And then once you have a change in the way you see the world, you have a change of mind. You change your thinking, and then you change your heart, and then you change your actions. That's what repentance means, to have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of actions. And we need to repent. Like to be able to see the world differently, to see the world through other people's eyes, that is repentance. And then once we've repented, we're ready to do something. On Thursday, I was back uh, to the plaza. We were uh, a part of a unity march to try to bring people together, and, and it was to show support for the African-American community, but it was also to say, hey, we've got to bring you know, the, the city and the African-American community together, and we've got to all be working together for common solutions. And, and then there was a counter-protest that was like, hey, we're not ready for a march for unity because we haven't really solved these problems. And anyway, it ended up being a pretty amazing thing. There was over 1,000 people who gathered. I saw over 100 resurrection people who were there. And, and, uh, and as we gathered together, the, the two crowds, you know, the two marches kind of melded into one, and, and, and the mayor was there, and the police chief was there, and they announced that there are body cams that now they're going to be able to procure thanks to a donation from someone. And, and, and so, you know, you look at this and like that was one of the chief demands and you know, there's a lot to be worked out on it but like that was a pretty amazing thing by itself and then and then we all marched together to the jc nichols fountain here in kansas city it's like this iconic you know site here in the kansas city area if you're not from here and and uh and, and there was all kinds of things that were happening in that moment it was it was really most remarkable but but one of the things i appreciated is is looking around i, I you know I, I bumped into several i talked to a lot of different people but i bumped into a number of resurrection families who were there where parents were intentional about bringing their children so the children could learn and could see, right? And so one of those families was the Sponigal family. And forgive me if, I, if I've mispronounced your name, but the Sponigal family, um, they were standing there, they had their masks on. And, and, uh, and as we were you know, talking, I said, hey, tell me why you're here. Like, like uh, Ian is 13 and, and Carissa is 18. She just graduated from high school. I want you to see them and hear what they had to say. Take a listen. I'm Carissa, I'm Ian, I'm Julie. All right, so why are you here? Okay, it's hard to hear with her face mask on, so let me just tell you a little what she said. She said she's been there every day this last week for the protest Carissa had been, not her little brother, but Carissa had been there every day this last week, uh, except one because her mom made her stay home because she was wearing herself out, but she was back again that night. She'd been there in the tear gas, right? She had seen the interactions between the police and, and some of the protesters. She had been uh, listening, and she'd been there to hold up her sign and say, I, I really believe this. And I want to be one more voice to come along. Not like I'm in charge. Like I'm just coming alongside to say this matters to God and it matters to me. And I want to stand with you. Her mother sent me a note and uh, Julie said this. She said, my, my pretty cushy white Johnson County life. That, that's the county that this church, one of our camp, two of our campuses are located in. My pretty, my pretty cushy white Johnson County life could easily go on ignoring these issues. But I'm choosing to make this my fight. We should not be the focus of attention. 
only a conduit to hear the voices of those who have been oppressed, marginalized, and unjustly treated. And this is really important, part of what she's saying there, I wanted you to hear from her. Because in the middle of this, like you are not, you know, if, if you go down and you're marching or protesting, you're not the hero that's going to save anybody. You're coming alongside other people, allowing their voices to actually be heard because you're there and standing with people and saying, you matter to me and you matter to God. I want to say a word about Jesus. So Jesus, in some sense, I, I was rereading the Gospels this week, and uh, Matthew and Luke, and in the light of all the protests, and one of the things that struck me is that Jesus was, in essence, leading a protest movement in his day. He was leading a protest movement against institutional Judaism, at least that portion of it that had become sort of corrupt, and against Rome, who was ruling over this territory, uh, the, this land at the time that, that he lived. He was leading a protest movement, offering a different kingdom, he was preaching about the kingdom of God, and he came along, and this is what his message was. We find at the beginning of the gospel, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God is here, so repent. Have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of behavior. And, and part of what he was frustrated by was the fact that there were so many marginalized people who were made to feel second class. They were called the aham, aha, aret, amha arets. In Hebrew, amha arets means the people of the land, and it was a way to say these are the uncouth people and they're the sort of less than us people, and they're the sinners, they're the unclean, and, and that included women, largely. Uh, it included Samaritans, it included uh, tax collectors, and garden variety sinners, and, and even fishermen who never made it to synagogue, right? The non-religious and nominally religious of our day. And they had been pushed away from God by the actions or the inaction of the religious leaders and then the Romans, who had abused them as well. And Jesus came, and he came to offer a different kind of kingdom. Uh, it's interesting, when I was reading about the, uh, the, the events of Palm Sunday, Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives riding on a donkey. That was a sign, it was a political sign that he was, the, he was claiming to be the king that the, that the prophet Zechariah had foretold. And he's coming down, and the people pick up palm branches, they begin to wave them in, in their hands, in their arms, as a way of expressing that this is the king that's coming. It was a sign of victory, and, and it had been a political sign. And so Jesus is coming down and he's leading this protest and, there's, and, and, and the religious leaders come up and say, Jesus, tell them to stop saying the things they're saying. Hosanna to the son of David, deliver us now. And, and he says, if these people didn't cry out, the very stones would have to shout. Right? And then you remember what he does? Like he's leading this march. And I was thinking about this as I was walking up Main Street this week with all of these you know, young protesters. And I was thinking about the Mount of Olives and all of, all of Jesus' friends, they were, you know, his disciples and all these others, so many of them were young. They were in their 20s and 30s and, and they're marching, you know, with Jesus, anticipating a kingdom that's going to come, a, a radical change that's going to take place. And as, they're, as I was marching up that hill, I was seeing this, I was thinking about it. Then I thought about, you know, the, the riots that happen sometimes and the, and the you know, the anger and, and the, and I was thinking, what did Jesus do when he got to Jerusalem? Do you remember? Like he went to the Temple Mount and he turned the money tables, uh, money changers' tables over, and all those who were selling things, he turned over all the merchants' you know, tables, and then he took a cat of nine tails, a whip, and he began to drive people out of the temple courts. And can you imagine what people were saying about that? Like, who is this guy, and how can he be doing these sort of violent acts? Well, Jesus was a really nice guy, and often we as Christians tend to think Jesus was just nice and polite all the time, but sometimes he got really angry when he saw people abused and hurt and misused and religion used in a way that kept people oppressed or pushed down. Jesus got angry too. Now listen, I, I want to I say something else that may upset uh, another group of folks here. 
I don't mean to upset you, just I'm standing at the protest and the police were across the street in their riot gear and, uh, and I'm listening as some of the protesters, not most of them, but some of them are hurling insults at the police, uh, firing the F-bomb and giving them the finger and shouting things that were just insulting, right? And I understand the rage and the anger, but it was almost like it was designed to, you know, to to evoke some kind of response. They were designed to, to, to really insult them in such a way that they finally react. And you know, sometimes the police do react in those circumstances. I want to be crystal clear. A lot, of, a lot of things need to be changed in law enforcement. But I also want to say when I was watching that, you know, I wanted to stand with the protesters to say, of course, and this isn't just about police, it's about all of us. I wanted to stand with them, but I also want to say, but this isn't the way. Not hurling insults at other people. That's not the way of Jesus anyway. Because Jesus actually had a very different approach. Yes, he sometimes got angry. He actually called out the Pharisees. Calling people out is one thing. Trying to find ways to simply hurt them looks very different than what Jesus did. He called us to love our enemies. Now, the police are not your enemy, but there may be bad cops out there that need to be addressed. There may be bad policies and bad ways of doing things that have to be addressed. We know that. But we can't paint a br- you know, with a broad brush, all police are this way. I saw signs, you know, on TV, all cops are bad. Really? That's just as, we we can't do that. We've got to be better than that if we're going to see change too. I I think about Dr. King and what he said. I love these words, a little long quote. I want you to hear it though. It comes from his sermon, Loving Your Enemies. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. That's a powerful line. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you, but be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. I, I was uh, there on Thursday night, and, and Thursday evening, the police came not in right gear. They were just standing in their regular uh, police uniforms, and they were mingling among the crowd. It was actually pretty amazing. They had this, uh, somebody came up with a great idea. They had tents set up, and the police were sitting at tables, and anybody could come up and just vent to the police. Here, here's a couple pictures of this. And the police were just listening. And as they were listening, you know, as the police chief and, and people standing around and they're just like just pouring out their pain to these folks and they're trying to listen. Go to the next one. And I love this picture. I was walking home, or walking back to my car, and I just saw this young woman talking to this police officer and there they were and they were smiling and talking with each other and sharing stories with each other and there was something very powerful and disarming in that moment that helped the police officers understand the experience of these African Americans, had the African Americans see the police officers as human beings. We cannot dehumanize each other regardless of where we stand or which side of this debate that we're on. There was a police officer who was there, and I thought I recognized him. He is one of the officers that we hire off-duty uh, at least a couple times he's been at our Resurrection downtown campus. And he was there with his wife standing in the crowd, and, and there were his three children. I'm going to guess they looked like they were 8, 10, and 12. They all had their masks on. And, you know, they're standing there, and, and I went up and talked to them. I said, hey, you know, it's good to see you. I'm really glad you came out, and I think it's awesome you brought your kids and your wife to come here. And, and then it struck me, you know, the signs that they were seeing. And the things, the messages that they'd heard. 
you know, on television. And I'm looking at these kids, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit told me, go back and talk to them. And I went back, and I looked at each of the kids, and I said, hey, this has got to be a really scary time for you. And they nodded their heads, and it looked like one of them was starting to tear up. And I said, and you know, you've heard a lot of bad things said about police officers. That must be really personal to you. And they shook their heads again. And I said, here's the thing. None of these people know your dad. They don't know what a great guy he is. They don't know what, a, what kind of human being he is. They just know that they saw something that was so painful and so heinous, so horrible, that they don't ever want to see that happen again. And, and so the group that they're speaking to are our police in Kansas City. They don't hate your dad. They just hate what happened. But see, that's the, that's the kind of thing we have to be able to show and communicate and express if we're going to see change happening. So protest and speak out and speak your mind and speak truth to power, but don't give in to hate in the process. All right, there's a few photos that I found interesting several people shared with me. Uh, these are police and protesters praying together, which I just thought was a beautiful sign. And this was from one of the protests across the country, I forget which city. And there's something really powerful about seeing these scenes Right? This has the power to change the heart and the mind on both sides, right? This kid knows that this police officer gave him a hug and cared about him. And, and this police officer's heart melted when that kid came up and hugged him. And here they are kneeling together like, this is what we have to find if we're going to find healing in our world. We have to recognize that there's brokenness and pain. We have to see it in ourselves, the brokenness in ourselves. And we have to be willing to speak up and say, that is just not okay. It's not right. Racism, injustice, inequity, this is not right. And, and if the church isn't going to speak up, and if those Christians who actually have power are unwilling to speak up and stand with the powerless, then there's no hope. But if we don't do that, we've stopped being the church. So I want to end with this. This week, I was on a video uh, Facebook uh, Live event with, I've been on several of these this week with a various panelists, and, and this was, uh, was orchestrated on Zoom, but then it was broadcast on Facebook Live, and, and there were, I think, 12 community leaders uh, there was the chief prosecutor in Kansas City, and there was uh, a number of folks. There were four or five African-Americans, four or five uh, Caucasians. A, a number of us were pastors who were there. And uh, Darren Edwards, who is the pastor of United, uh, United Believers Community Church, uh, was the one who helped organize this along with Emmanuel Cleaver III at St. James United Methodist Church. And they asked if I'd be on there, and I said, man, I'd love to be on there. And, you know, my posture has been to try to listen. Like, I was taking notes during, you'll see my notepad at one point, taking notes, just trying to pay attention. And when we got to the end, we had this, this really meaningful conversation. When we got to the end, Darren Edwards, one of the co-sponsors, spoke up. And he began to talk about what his hopes were. And here's the thing. I wanted to give him the last word to you so that you could hear from him and listen to his challenge to us. Take a listen. Here's, here's my challenge to my allies. If what we've done tonight, if what we've seen on TV if it's not felt in our heart and if it's not addressed in your concentric circle of influence, it'll never change the world. My question to you is, what are you going to do? I, I love to be a fly on the wall because I believe in you, but I love to see how you're addressing this in your concentric circle of influence. I think everybody that's watching on Facebook, how is Gene dealing with this in the prosecuting office? How is Bob dealing with this at Kaufman, his various vicinity? How is Adam making this work, you know, at Church of Resurrection? How is Nicole dealing with this as she's doing what she's doing, moving towards campaign? How, how is all these things coming into play 
into place, I love to see how you're addressing it. Because if we address it right, the world will change. If we feel it first. So I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to read something. And some, this is, this convicted me, and I, I'm done. I promise I'm done. But this convicted me so, so very much. And I wanted to read it tonight in, in the, in the Old Testament with Amos. He's a visionary. He's a, he's a teller. I want to read it from Eugene Peterson's version. In Amos 5, 21 through 24, he says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and your image making. This is God talking. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang a song to me? Do you know what I really want? Here it is, everybody. I want justice oceans of it. I want fairness, fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Are you listening? That's what God wants. That's all he wants. Are you willing to repent, to see the places that are broken in your own life, to have a change of mind and a change of heart, leading to a change of behavior? And are you willing to do something about it? There's 40,000 of you joining us for this service. And if we together say, we're all in, the world is gonna be changed. Are you all in? Let's pray. God, sometimes we can't see what we can't see. We are blind to the pain other people experience. Forgive us, O oh Lord, and open our eyes to see. Help us to see with your eyes. Help us to hear with your ears. Help our hearts to break for what breaks your heart. And O oh God, fill us with a heart of courage. Help us so that our lives reflect mishpat, justice. Tzedakah, righteousness, hesed, compassion, and kindness. That we might be a part of ushering in your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us for our silence. Help us to find our voice. Help us to love. In Jesus' name, amen.